So um, Josh and I didn't talk about this ahead of time. I didn't realize he was going to uh, open up with some James Webb telescope thoughts. Um, so you're going to get a double shot of the James Webb telescope, sort of, not really, kind of. Um, so size of the universe, as Josh referenced here and there, is just utterly mind-boggling. And it's just impossible to grasp if you've ever tried to read some of the stats of the size of the universe, just the size of the solar system, for crying out loud, let alone our Milky Way galaxy, let alone the fact that there are apparently billions, billions of galaxies. And every one of those billions of galaxies has hundreds of billions of stars. Again, this is just like, how do you even get your mind around this? So Hubble, yes, that was amazing. James Webb reinforcing the vastness even further, wowing us with images, information, confounding scientists with data that doesn't align with their previous theories and hypotheses. So this is, um, we knew this before the James Webb telescope, but still, I think sometimes when you look at the far reaches of the, of the universe, it's just so massive that it doesn't even really sink in. So a little closer to home here in our own solar system. I've mentioned it before. Maybe you knew this. But you could fit about a million Earths inside the sun. Just try to get your mind around that. And our sun is a pretty average, kind of modest star that hangs in space, and we orbit around it at the safe distance of around 93 million miles. So some of these thoughts I've kind of edited, but it's from this article on space.com by Nola Taylor Tillman. What's the biggest star ever observed? It makes our sun look like a bug. If you want to look this article up and read it yourself, okay? So the largest, so, so that's our star, our sun, um, modest star, a million Earths inside. If you could crack it open, doesn't really work, but anyway. The largest known star in the universe is U.Y. Scuti, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I don't really know. It's a hypergiant with a radius around 1,700 times larger than the radius of the sun. So hypergiants, which are larger than supergiants and giants, in case you didn't know that, are rare stars that shine very brightly. You could fit almost five billion suns inside a sphere the size of U.Y. Scuti. I didn't say Earths. I said suns. So this star lies near the center of the Milky Way. That's our galaxy, right? Roughly 9,500 light years away from Earth. And the author notes, we should note that stellar sizes are estimates. Okay. Um, the complication with stars, she writes, is that they have diffuse edges. Jillian, I'm sorry, Jillian Scudder is an astronomer at the University of Sussex, and she says this. Most stars don't have a rigid surface where the gas ends and vacuum begins, which would have served as a harsh dividing line and easy marker of the end of the star. How do you actually measure these stars is kind of the issue, right? So instead, astronomers rely on a star's photosphere to determine its size. The photosphere is where the star becomes transparent to light, and the particles of light or photons can escape the star. As far as an astrophysicist is concerned, this is the surface of the star, as this is the point at which photons can leave the star, Scudder wrote. 
So, if U Y Scuti replaced the sun at the center of our solar system, its photosphere, okay, so its out, outer edges would extend just beyond Jupiter. Okay? What's the first one? Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter. The orbit of Jupiter, it would fill that. Something like almost a billion miles in diameter. And the nebula of gas ejected from UY Scuti would extend beyond the orbit of Pluto. So Hebrews 1, 1 to 3 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. So the Father created the universe, not just earth, but the universe, through the power of the Son, not S-U-N, the agency of the Son, spoke it all into existence, those texts that Josh referenced, Isaiah 40, Psalm 8, and the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, his powerful word. He upholds everything by his word. Created it with the word, sustains it with the word. So the Son, S-O-N, of the omnipotent, infinite, triune God that spoke all of that vastness into existence and sustains it all took on flesh and blood and became a baby and a man. So just try to begin to put your mind around the mind-boggling glory that was veiled in flesh when Jesus was on earth. Just think of UY Scooty jammed into a glow stick. That doesn't even do the incarnation justice. And Josh read Matthew 27. You had these soldiers mocking him and beating him if they knew what they were dealing with, like, I mean, do you know what I'm saying? Like, what if it breaks out? What if he breaks out? So certainly power did break out when he was on earth, right? Calming of the storm, we've, we're studying the Gospel of Mark. We've seen it. He just says, peace, be still and the elements obey. 
a man is possessed by a legion of demons and lives among the, the tombs and he's cutting himself and nobody can, like, nobody can hold him with chains or anything. He just breaks them apart. And Jesus shows up on the shore and this guy comes and hits his knees at Jesus' feet. And Jesus says the word and all those demons have to leave. So power broke out. He healed people. I mean, woman touches his garment and she's healed. 12 years of bleeding. Done. But his glory was incredibly hidden too, right? And that glory was hidden on purpose. But there was once when the veil was pulled back just slightly. And that's what we're going to consider this morning. We know it as the transfiguration, right? So we've made it to the beginning of the second half of the gospel according to Mark. And we're going to look at Mark 9, 1 to 13. So if you're not there yet, go ahead and turn to Mark 9 so you can follow along. It's on page 844 if you're using the Bible in the pew. So first thing is, what's the meaning of this first verse here? Um, We're going to ask some questions to make sure we understand what this is all about. And then the last two points, there's five points. The last two points are going to be primarily application. So what does it mean for us? Okay, so, but first, what does this mean? Verse one, Jesus said to them, his disciples, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So there's actually all kinds of glory hidden in this passage, starting with the first words here. Um, I, maybe I need to not hit everything that's in here, otherwise we will be here too long. But truly I say to you, um, it's easy to just run right past that. In the Old Testament, the prophets, when they spoke for Yahweh, they would say, thus says Yahweh, thus says the Lord, right? Here, Jesus assumes the, the authority himself. This kind of language was without precedent or parallel in Jewish literature. It's why, part of the reason why, remember the people would say, he speaks with authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. Because he says, truly, I say to you. In other words, like you're speaking as if it's thus saith the Lord, but it's thus saith you. So again, I mean, we'd easily just run right past that, but his glory is being revealed right there. Um, Remember, the end of chapter 8 is the the kind of the hinge upon which the book turns. The title of our series is King and Cross, the identity of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. And the identity of Jesus is central in the first half, and the mission of Jesus is central in the second half. There's both in both halves, but that's kind of an oversimplification of how it all works. So we're on this pivot point where... Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? They give some answers, and then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. And then Jesus says, yes, you're right, and I'm going to suffer and die. I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to die, and then I'm going to rise again. And the disciples' minds are just like, you know, scrambled, like, what? Messiahs don't die? 
they conquer and triumph. So they, they don't understand. In fact, Peter rebukes Jesus. That's not going to happen. And so Peter, or Jesus has to rebuke Peter, get behind me, Satan. Okay, so this is where we are located right here. Jesus said plainly that his mission is to suffer and die and rise again. And the second half of the book is marked by Jesus marching unstoppably to the cross. And that has implications for anyone who wants to follow him. It's not, hey, we're going to conquer and triumph. It's, if you want to come after me, you also must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Like, you are not the one who determines what's best and good for you. That's what broke the world when Adam and Eve thought they knew better than God what was good for them. So you die to that self-determination and you say, Jesus is Lord and I'm going to trust and follow him. Okay, so in that context, what then does 9-1 mean? Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. What? Like, are some of these disciples going to live until Jesus comes back? I mean, that's not possible. That can't be what it means. Well, it's pretty clear that there's no coincidence that the transfiguration takes place immediately after this. So some, of, some standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God, and at the center of the kingdom of God is the king, the reign of God, after it has come with power. So it certainly has connection to the transfiguration because they're going to see the glory of Jesus revealed. Um, it also is quite possible that it refers to the resurrection and ascension where Jesus reigns at the Father's right hand, maybe all the way to Pentecost and the pouring out of the Spirit and the explosion of the early church, right? But it definitely includes the transfiguration and probably the transfiguration as a pointer to the triumph and powerful arrival of the kingdom of God that came as a result of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Okay? So, we'll also consider in a few minutes why it's placed here a little bit later, the transfiguration. Why is it here in Mark's gospel? But that's going to be getting ahead of ourselves. So, let's read on and we'll look at point number two. The meaning of the transfiguration. So, let's look at verses two to eight. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they saw no longer, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. So what's the meaning of the transfiguration? Like, why did this happen? Why did Jesus do this with these three disciples? It certainly wasn't a parlor trick. None of his miraculous works were parlor tricks. Like, hey, watch this. You know, it's not just to impress the disciples. 
There's purpose here. So the word that we translate transfigured is metamorphose, okay? So you can hear the word for metamorphosis in there that we use, right? To transform, to change form. So a monarch metamorphosizes when it goes from a caterpillar to a butterfly, right? But here the point is not that Jesus' nature changed. Rather, his true nature was allowed to shine through in a way. So his divine glory was veiled in human flesh, the incarnation. And through the transfiguration, you get a glimpse of his true but veiled nature. His glory was allowed to break through and be seen in a fraction of its brilliance by Peter, James, and John. So if you're familiar, for instance, with the vision of the resurrected and reigning King Jesus in Revelation 1, you can see how a glimpse of his eternal glory was seen by the three disciples in the transfiguration. So Revelation 1 John sees this vision, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, indicating wisdom, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, meaning his word is powerful, to judge. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Okay, so, okay, transfiguration. To transfigure is to change form. Um, But what is the meaning of the transfiguration. Why does this happen? Why did God choose to do this? Well, there's several clues in the text and we need to kind of take note of them as they appear in the text. So first off, did you see that Jesus led them up a high mountain? Okay, like you have to realize that as you read the gospels, oftentimes there are allusions to earlier parts in the story. Just like if you read the Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or something and you just jumped into book five, you're going to read stuff that you're like, what in the world is going on? Who's this guy? Unless you know the backstory. So there's backstory here that's being alluded to. Okay? And it has to do with the meaning of things here. So the high mountain. In the Old Testament, there are a number of occasions where God reveals himself on a mountain. In particular, there's two instances in the book of Exodus that are especially relevant Okay, so whenever God brought um, the Israelites out of Egypt, you know, by his mighty hand, the Exodus, and then he brought them into the wilderness, and then he brought them to Mount Sinai, right? And in Exodus 24, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, and 70 of the elders go up the, the mountain, and they see the God of Israel. Okay, so in that same chapter, Exodus 24, 15, then Moses went up the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of Yahweh dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So God's revealing his character and he's making this covenant with his people. A little later on in Exodus 34, after that whole incident with the golden calf, again, God reveals himself 
on Mount Sinai to Moses and shows him his glory, okay? And, and proclaims his name. This is who I am, Yahweh, Yahweh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So he's revealing himself and it's in the context of making a covenant with his people. Second clue, we mentioned briefly the definition of transfiguration, right? Um, well, do you remember what happened? Also in Exodus, Exodus 34, when Moses was on the mountain with God 40 days and 40 nights. Remember what happened with his face? He came down and his face was shining. Okay, Exodus 34, 29, Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. And the people were afraid of him when they saw him. So Moses' face shone with radiance as a reflection of God's glory. Here in Mark 9, Jesus radiates light from the inside out. He's not a moon to the sun. He is the sun. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, Hebrews 1.3. He is the son of righteousness. Third clue, Elijah and Moses, what are they doing here? <laughs> like, what's going on there? Why these two? Is it just because they were key Old Testament representatives? Is it like shorthand for the law and the prophets? Um, not impossible, but it actually appears that there's some things more specific than that that are going on. So in the minds of the Jews at the time, there were some specific expectations that God would raise up particular people en route to his return, en route to the coming of his kingdom, en route to the renewal of all things. So, for instance, in Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses prophesies this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. Okay, we're going to read in just a minute that out of the cloud, or actually we did read it already, the father says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. You see the allusion to Deuteronomy 18, 15. And then Rob read from Malachi 3 and 4. Yahweh's going to send his messenger ahead of him to prepare the way before the awesome, the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So everything is pointing to Jesus as the culmination of all that the Old Testament pointed to, all that the people of God were anticipating. Moses and Elijah are forerunners, preparatory figures. Jesus is the one we've all been waiting for. He's the climax. The day of the Lord is at hand. Everything in the Old Testament points to this day. And is it here? Is it here? Fourth clue the cloud and the voice on the mountain. So if you look at verse 7, you see that the cloud overshadowed them. Again, in the Old Testament, clouds are often a symbol of God's presence and his glory. So think about the Exodus. When the people were led out of Egypt, pillar of cloud by day. That was God's presence going with them. Or the clouds that covered Mount Sinai because Yahweh descended on the mountain or the cloud that settled on the tent of meeting or the glory of Yahweh that filled the temple like a cloud in Solomon's day, the Shekinah glory, right? So the transfiguration reaches its apex 
when the voice of the Father speaks from the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. If you've been tracking along in the Gospel of Mark, you might think, huh, that sounds like something we've already heard. The baptism of Jesus. Remember? Back in chapter 1, when Jesus came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So it's similar, but it's different. The Father was speaking to the Son at the baptism. Now the Father is speaking to the disciples. This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. So let's zoom, zoom out for a minute here. So we just arrived at this climactic kind of turning point in Mark's gospel account. Who do you say that I am? You're the Christ. You're right. And I'm going to suffer and die and rise again. Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus rebukes Peter. They just don't have categories for a suffering, dying Messiah. So in light of all of that, the transfiguration comes next. Why? Think about it. This is the amazing kindness of God. Look at the lengths to which God will go to affirm, to confirm the identity of the Messiah to his disciples who are struggling to understand how there can be a suffering Messiah, a dying Messiah. I mean, Jesus could have just scolded them, like, what's wrong with you guys? You're so thick. And he certainly had to rebuke Peter. But instead, there's this dramatic confirmation. Like, what an amazing source of reassurance this would be. I mean, after this sober call, I'm going to suffer and die, you're going to suffer. If you're going to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So how kind of God to say, Listen, this is not going to be defeat as an end in itself. I've got a plan, and I'm in charge. So let me show you my glory so that you know who you're dealing with and you can trust me. And not just Jesus saying this, but God preaches the sermon. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Last clue to the meaning of the transfiguration, these vanishing prophets, okay? So Moses and Elijah, two of the most revered figures from Old Testament history. Peter responds with his plan to set up some tents because he doesn't know what to say, you know, and Peter's just kind of like, yeah. Well, this would be a good idea. One for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. But listen, the three are not equal. The voice puts everything in perspective. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And what happens? Moses and Elijah are nowhere to be seen, and Jesus only is with them. The superiority, the preeminence of Jesus is front and center. So again, long ago, Hebrews 1 again, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. Listen to him. So on the high mountain, Jesus reveals his glory, just as God had done in the Old Testament. The deity that's veiled in flesh breaks through, and these disciples see 
that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. He's the prophet they anticipated. He's Yahweh dwelling with humanity, bringing the day of the Lord, like Malachi predicted, to follow the coming of Elijah. And the glory cloud and the voice reinforce all of this, and his disciples are, and us were exhorted to listen, listen to him. So now they're on their way down the high mountain, point three. And what's the meaning of that conversation? Look at verse nine. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them, Peter, James, and John, right, the three that were with him, to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So we've seen Jesus command people to be silent in Mark's gospel account, right? And the reason for that was if they don't understand who I am and why I came, I don't want them, you know, stirring up a bunch of false messianic fervor. I didn't come to, you know, set them free from the Romans. I came to set them free from sin. So keep it down. Otherwise, I'm not even going to be able to move from place to place without this huge crowd, which happened over and over again because people didn't listen to him and they just kept spreading the word. So he needed to be the one to explain who he was and why he came. But this command of silence is the first time that we see that that command of silence has an expiration date. Tell no one what you've seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So, once he's risen from the dead, at this point in the minds of the disciples, what in the world does that mean? There would no longer be any reason to keep quiet about anything pertaining to the identity of the Son of Man. So they obeyed even though they didn't understand. So they were, in the minds of first century Jews, they, they were, you know, familiar with the general resurrection at the last day. But what could the rising of the Son of Man mean? Like, it seemed so cryptic to them. Son of Man, from Daniel 7, that was supposed to be this powerful king that everybody bowed to and served. Why would he need to rise from the dead? Verse 11, and they asked him, why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Okay, referencing Malachi that Rob read. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? So the disciples knew Malachi 3 and 4. There was also some scribal tradition that, you know, Elijah would return and anoint the Messiah and make him known to everyone. And they knew that the coming of Elijah meant the restoration of all things. And they had just seen Elijah. They just saw him on the mountain with Moses. So does that mean the day of the Lord is imminent? Does that mean the restoration of all things is here? Like, if that's the case, why would we need to suffer? But Jesus puts Malachi 3 and 4 with Isaiah 53. How is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? You know, like a lamb led to the slaughter. We all like sheep have gone astray, and yet the Lord put on him the iniquity of us all. So he suffered for us. So, he also says, Jesus says, that Elijah has already come. 
And it's not Elijah there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Verse 13, but I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. John the Baptist, okay? So John the Baptist is this one who came in the spirit of Elijah, the forerunner. And he's come and what happened to him? He was imprisoned and he was killed. He suffered and he died. And now Jesus, the son of man, the Messiah, will suffer and die. Okay. So there's a lot in there, right? There's a lot to understand and unpack. But let's consider a couple points of application here now and consider it for our own lives. Point number four, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So what in particular might be the focus when the voice from the cloud says, listen to him. What were the disciples struggling to hear? They struggled to hear the suffering and death and resurrection of the Son of Man and the implications for them following him. Right? I mean, Peter rebuked Jesus at first because he struggled to hear that word. So listen to him reinforces what Jesus has said about the nature of his mission. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the religious leaders and be killed and after three days rise again. And not only that, but that has implications for anyone who wants to follow me. You're not going to rise immediately to power at my right hand and rule with me triumphant. So, Jesus called the crowd and said, if anyone wants to come after me, this is what it means. So the mission of Jesus is revealed. It changes everything for what it means to follow him. And at this point is when the divine voice says, listen to him. So the end times hopes that they had, they were being fulfilled, but in a way that they didn't expect. In and through Jesus, the Son of Man, not the way the disciples thought, not by show of political military might, but through suffering and death, power through weakness. So James Edwards, one commentator, says, Christology, who Jesus is, leads to discipleship, and discipleship flows from Christology. It's God's ratification of the way to the cross. For Jesus and the disciples, the road to glory leads through the valley of suffering. So John the Baptist this second Elijah, prepared the people for the renewal of all things by leading them to repentance. Right? Baptism of repentance, to be ready when the Lord came. So Malachi 4 is like a fitting conclusion to the law and the prophets. Moses and Elijah prepare the people of God for the day of the Lord. Renewal, restoration comes through the day of the Lord. What is this day of the Lord thing all about? What's the day when God will come and judge his enemies and free his people? That's what the people expected. God would come directly. He would show up and he did and he did so in Jesus and the day of the Lord arrived. But again, not like they expected. It actually was inaugurated on the cross. So do you remember like what 
Rob read there and even what I was praying in Malachi 3 who can endure the day of his coming who can stand when he appears like if he just comes to judge guess what we're all toast none of us can stand but he came first to suffer and die the day of the Lord judgment fell on him so that it wouldn't have to fall on us so that his enemies that's you and me by nature could be made reconciled friends the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many like hallelujah and all who follow Jesus turn from their sin trust in him alone for forgiveness and cleansing and reconciliation and peace with God and we follow Jesus daily by denying ourselves he's the Lord not us taking up our cross and following him so that's both wonderful and sobering this is the father's beloved son listen to him and just like it was paradigm shaking and kind of confusing for the disciples at the time because they didn't expect to have a suffering Messiah and they didn't want to suffer they just wanted to rule so also we need to listen to him like think about how helpful this was maybe just Mark's first readers of this gospel account when Nero was on the throne and he was throwing Christians to the lions or lighting his garden with Christians dipped in pitch and set on fire. Like you can imagine the Christians saying like, what in the world? Are you asleep at the switch? Like what's going on? But to know that this is actually God's plan and he's in control. So suffering is not a signal of God abandoning us or his plan being totally out of control. Following the suffering Savior means that we're sharing the fellowship of his sufferings. And we can trust him, listen to him, no matter the cost of following him. So listen, brothers and sisters, we go through so much suffering in this life, right? So much struggle. We wonder why God doesn't give us more victory, less suffering. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Our greatest problems are not out there in our circumstances. Our greatest problems are in here. We need delivered from sin and death. If we got delivered from all of our circumstantial trouble and everything was just like, you know, a bed of roses for the rest of our lives and that's all God did for us, what good is that going to do us on our deathbed and when we face him? What does what it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? So listen to him about what's most important, about what you most need. The most important voice in our lives, in our heads, in our hearts, needs to be the voice of Jesus. So whose voice matters most on a daily basis in your life? Who gets the last word in your mind, in your heart? A lot of voices in the world. We're going to face a lot of things on the race that's set before us that we wish were not there. Like, are you sure, Lord? Like, why me? Why do I have to suffer like this? 
And if we are going to run the race that is set before us, we need to listen to the one who made the world and who came in flesh and blood to save us. We need reassurance of who he is, which again was the purpose of the transfiguration. The renewal of all things has begun. Our struggles and our suffering and our sin and our defeats and our weakness do not call that into question. You know, Paul with the thorn in the flesh, take it away. No, take it away. No, take it away. No. Listen to me. My power is perfected in your weakness. You listen and you say, okay, your grace is sufficient. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses because when I am weak, you are strong. Your power is perfected in me. So we need to tune our ears to our captain and listen to him and run the race that's set before us, throwing off everything that hinders and the sin that clings so closely. All right, one more point of application here because there's grace to continue to follow Jesus, right? Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus sounds like all loss. But Jesus says, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose it for my sake and the gospels, you find it. So humiliation and exaltation. Last point here. Final lesson of the transfiguration. The resurrection is just as important as the cross. Okay, so the disciples needed to listen to the fact that Jesus was going to the cross to deal with sin as a ransom to set us free from the debt and slavery to sin that's ours, right? But they also needed to listen to the promise of the coming resurrection. Like he already told them, and in three days I'm going to rise again. And they didn't know what that was all about. But the whole point is, Jesus didn't stay humiliated forever. The plan of the cross was humiliation and then exaltation. Cross and then crown. So for us, it's not just deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus. Full stop. It's everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Or 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. So Jesus emptied himself, took on the form of a man, a slave to the point of death, but he was therefore highly exalted. So listen, the transfiguration is a foreshadowing of our bright exalted future. The renewal of all things really has begun. Do you see it like we are going to be exalted. We may be marginalized, humiliated, you know, in this life. We may suffer. But one day, Jesus is coming back and we will be resurrected and exalted forever. We will rule and reign with him. This is what awaits us. The gain is worth the pain. The self-denial and the death is not an end in itself. Whoever tries to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will find it, will save it for eternity. This is grace. So I'm going to suffer and die, but let me show you a little glimpse of future glory at the transfiguration. If you want to follow me, you're going to suffer and die. But I rose again. And so will you. Trust me.
listen to me. All right, let's pray. And then we're gonna prepare for the, the table.